This is Radiant's tape number, JD26, recorded in June 1972, the third and final of three teachings in the Soul series by Jim Durkin. This final message is entitled, The Looking Glass of Your Soul. I'd like you to take your Bibles tonight, turn to the book of Jeremiah. I'm going to bring a message tonight, be a little bit of a continuation on the subject of the soul, but it will be a strong emphasis on why I minister on and so emphatically on the subject of mastering the principles of the Bible and putting them into operation in our lives. Now, folks, the Christian life is not something that by one act of surrender for a moment that you now have possessed all there is of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, you have received all there is of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we by no means possess all there is of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is just as the Israelites received the promised land, but it was necessary for them to go in and take the promised land. Now, there are a good many people today that they merely settle for receiving something, and they call it receiving something by faith, but they don't really receive the inheritance by faith. Their understanding of it is a little tiny minuscule part of all that God plans for our lives. And so therefore, there is so much that we never are set free from. Now the Bible says, ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Well, let me put it another way. If you know only 5% of the truth that God intends for you to know, then obviously you're only going to be 5% set free of the entire freedom that God wishes you to have. He wants you to have freedom to create. He wants you to have freedom to produce. He wants you to have freedom to accomplish. He wants you to have freedom to grow. Now, many people only get enough freedom to barely make it into heaven. And it's a tiny entrance that's made there. They just go in like the Bible says, almost like by the skin of their teeth. They get by, the Bible says, so as by fire, but all the works are burned up and nothing is accomplished in their lifetime. They are saved by grace, but they built nothing on that marvelous foundation that was given to them, and that foundation was Christ. Now, when we're talking about building them on the Word, putting these principles into our life, we're talking about building a life, see? not just getting saved. That's the beginning, but it's only the tiniest beginning of all the things that God wants to do for us. Now, if you turn with me, please, then, to the 17th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, and take a look with me, please, at verse 5, Jeremiah 17, verse 5. I'll read on here a little bit. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man. Now, please notice here, it does not mean Cursed be the man that has any faith in his fellow man. He isn't talking about that. Like if a man says to you, uh, Jim, I'll meet you tomorrow at 5 o'clock uh, in front of the office. I say, okay, I believe you. Now, I'm trusting in man. But this isn't what this is talking about. It means to put your faith in man that ought to be put in God. In other words, that I know by utilizing my own shrewdness and my intellect and by working with others and all of us working together that we can accomplish something here tremendous and we don't need God. Oh, yes. At all times, we need God. All of the men on the face of the earth working together in total harmony. 
can never produce anything in this world but total chaos. But one person with his faith wholly in the Lord will find a peace that passes understanding and leaves good behind him every place that he goes. So what it's talking about is not the simple fact of having some belief in what your fellow man says, but putting your trust in man that ought to be put in God, or putting your trust in his teaching that ought to be put in God's teaching, or putting your trust in his promises that ought to be put in God's promises, or putting your trust in man's statements that are contrary to God's word. Now you're going to find that what I'm reading out of Jeremiah is very close in content to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. This is just almost a rendition of it. You'll see it as we go along here. As a matter of fact, if you had Psalms 1, it'd be a good thing you put your finger in there and we'll, we'll maybe turn back and forth between the two and you'll see how closely these are connected, although in actuality, Jeremiah was speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit. And he wasn't just merely paraphrasing Psalm 1. But the Holy Spirit was bringing out the same general truth in another place. Here a little, there a little. Line upon line and precept upon precept. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arms, and whose heart departeth from the Lord, sitteth in the seat of the scornful. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and he shall not see when good cometh. That is the man that does these things. Departs from the Lord and puts his trust in man, sits in the seat of the scornful, walks in the way of sinners, standeth and so forth. But shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land, and not inhabited. Psalm 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Verse 2. And in his law does he meditate day and night. Now notice this contrast. His delight is in the law of the Lord. First we read about the bad man, the one who puts his trust in man, the one who puts his trust in the counsel of sinners, departs from the Lord, sits in the seat of the scornful. Now it contrasts it with the man of God. The delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Now turn back to Jeremiah 17 and verse 7. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Now, where is a scripture like that to be found? Almost like it. Where? Psalm 1. Let me read it to you. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now, I want to get to the important scripture that I wanted to lay down before you tonight. You see, there is something continually warring against us producing in our lives that which God intends that we should produce. That is that all of our lives, this thing we call our soul, has been trained in deceit. 
it has not only been trained in pleasure, that is, it aims at all times to do that which brings it pleasure. Now, strangely enough, pain to the body or pain to the mind or rejection by people may bring the soul of some people the greatest amount of pleasure. There are people that I have known who literally desired to remain sick because they received pleasure out of the sympathy that they received by being sick. Their soul was trained in a perverse type of pleasure that they wanted attention so badly and they wanted sympathy so badly that they literally not only were sick much of the time, but they made up sicknesses the rest of the time in order to get sympathy. And they would talk about their aches and their pains continue. You can no sooner meet the person, say hello, want to talk to you, so forth. Yes, want to tell you about my latest operation. You know that I've had my liver operated on. Here's all this. They literally wanted to remain sick. And he said, oh, is that right? You were cut wide open. Oh, how terrible. Yes. Oh, and you just don't know. They did this and they did that. And you know something? I'm all out of that operation. But do you know what I think? What? I think my heart is going bad already. Oh, really? Oh, oh, oh how See, and he on and on going on with it. Now, here's a perverse form of pleasure. Some have developed a martyr complex. And they literally go through life doing subtle things which will literally invite upon them the wrath of people. There are Christians who deliberately hope for and yearn for and want to be persecuted. Now let me tell you something, we ought not to want to be persecuted. But our souls can enjoy that perverse form of pleasure, which I tell you, my mother used to call it the martyr complex. And I think that's a pretty good name for it. I don't know where she got it from. I think she made it up. But it's a pretty good name. We go through life and say, oh, do you know the things that I'm suffering for Jesus? Tell me about it. Today, and here they go again. Now, the only difference between I want to tell you about my operation is I want to tell you about my persecution. And so it's the same thing in a different form. The soul is a tricky thing. It will do anything in its power to maintain the soul life, including lying to us. The Bible says at one point, well, let's look at verse 9. The heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord can know it. Now, therefore, I have to have some looking glass, some standard by which my soul tricks. Now, please keep in mind, we're not talking about my spirit. My spirit is totally sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. That isn't always so of every Christian, but I pray that it is of the majority of you here. If it is not, Sometime when I preach on sanctification, or some of the other brothers do, you'll see what I mean. That every form of sin, every form of selfishness, there is no sin that you can commit that has any value to you. The Bible tells us that sin is an absolutely negative thing. There's no redeeming feature, no value to it, whatever. 
and somewhere down the line you become a Christian. Some people are not aware of this, and they go on committing sins for a while. I mean, just presumptuous sins. Now, a good many Christians all of their lives do things foolishly and ignorantly and stupidly. We're not talking about that. That's the common lot of us all because we're not God and we make misjudgments and we blurt out things that we don't really mean and all kinds of silly things, which if we're not careful, we can classify every one of them as sins and therefore you can't even move without condemnation falling down on your head. But what I'm classifying as sin is the commitment of the spirit of the man to selfish activity. I want what I want. I want what I want. Now, at some point in the Christian's life, he reads the Bible or he hears a message or just God points it out to him directly to his own spirit and he comes to the conclusion, Father, there's only one thing I want in this world and that's to do your will and I give you everything that I possess, Lord, here I am. Here's my spirit, here's my soul, here's my body, they're yours, Lord, and from henceforth and forever to do your will is my only desire. Now, many times that's an eternal commitment that the man has made. But I tell you something, he has got a tricky, tricky soul that will maintain its soul life at any cost. And it has to be taken stern hold out by faith and trained. Or it'll go on with its silly stuff to the end of your days. You have a job. You don't like it. You do not feel, I've used this illustration before, but it's a sound one and a good one. You have a wife and three children, four children, two children. And you don't like the job. You want to quit. You want to quit in the worst possible way. But you just do not feel you can come home to your wife and children and say, I'm going to quit my job. Because your wife may say, well, where are you going to get another one? Well, I don't know where I'm going to get another one. Jobs are tight and I don't know, but I am going to quit my job. No, please don't quit your job. You just can't do it. We have no money to pay the bills, this, that. And there might be some discussion here back and forth. The wife may finally and probably will if she's a Christian submit to it. But most of us don't do that. We don't do that. We don't come home and say, I'm going to quit my job. The subconscious mind, the soulish part of our nature, begins to generate some funny stuff in our bodies. The soul, the subconscious part of our being, has been known to make people go completely blind. There wasn't a thing wrong with their eyes at all. Not a thing wrong with their seeing capacity. And yet they went totally blind. Now obviously, if you wake up one morning and you're totally blind, you can't see a thing, and you say, honey, I'm blind. I can't see to get out of bed. No one is going to say, Honey, why don't you get up out of bed and go to work? Now you've got a manufactured reason to lay right there in bed and not go to work. Sometimes it's not so bad. Sometimes it's only headaches that begin to possess it. Or it's stomach aches. Or odd sinus problems begin to crop up. And the next thing we're, oh, my sinus headaches and my nose is running and so forth and so on. All kinds of things go on and it's nothing more than the soulish nature of man trying to give you a manufactured right reason, excused reason, for doing what you want to do. Now, 
let me bring you an important idea here. I think it's important. What the Lord is trying to get you and I to do is to finally face life so honestly and openly that there are no more tricky spots in our being. But they are completely exposed. We've taken a clear look at ourselves in every aspect of our lives. The major aspects. I mean, all we have to see is the principle. And all the details will take care of itself. And we really see ourselves as we are. Now, not the spirit. It's been totally redeemed and committed to God. But this tricky soul. Tricky soul. Now, let me read this scripture again. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give to every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doing. Okay, now let's turn over here to the book of Galatians. And this is the sixth chapter. Galatians, the sixth chapter. Tell me something. What is one of the reasons why we're supposed to read the Bible? What does the Bible call itself in relationship to this message that I'm giving you tonight? What is one of the reasons why we should read the Bible? Okay, the truth, huh? All right. The Bible says, he that looketh into the perfect law of liberty. The Bible says, he that hears the word of God and does not do it, is like a man that looks into a what? A looking glass and immediately goes away and forgets what manner of man he is. Now this Bible is a looking glass to my what? To my soul. I hold it up and read it and it reflects the nature, the trickiness, the understanding, the growth, the training of my soul. There are some people who certainly are Christians, certainly they love the Lord, as far as they understand what's involved in that, and yet their souls still have the upper hand over their lives. They've never learned to take control of their souls, and anything their soul wants to do, bing, they just, and off they go. They have no control over their nature. And yet all they have to do is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to read the promises of God and act upon those promises and the soul would be brought under control and they could do what they want with their lives. In other words, they would reflect the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in their lives. But their souls control them. And the worst of it is they go on kidding themselves sometimes and allowing their souls to keep deceiving them. And they keep on believing the lies. Now let me tell you how the soulish nature of man works. The thing that brings you to Jesus Christ is you finally face one fact that you never faced before in all your life. I never faced in my life until I came to that realization, that one thing, that I had no answer. My road had run out. I had come to a dead end street. As long as I thought I had one more road to travel which would provide some answer or some pleasure or something else for my soul, I was not ready to come to God. And I went here and I went there and I went someplace else. Oh, someday or this and that or I don't believe in God. Oh, I had a million trips going. There's no difference in this generation and my generation the one before me. We all had our trips going. Our souls 
were trained from the very beginning to deceive us. The Bible says they go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Think of it. Go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Speaking of the human race. Not a certain race or a certain wicked people. It means a whole human race. As soon as they're born, they go astray like sheep. We turn to our own way, speaking lies. Now, I grow up in my lifetime, all my life, lying to myself. I justify everything that I do. I get out of this. I don't do what I should do here. I pull off this rotten deal. I say this thing. I lie to this person. I defraud this person. I cheat this one over here. But I never really come out and say unless I truly become a vicious, hardened, terrible person outwardly as well. I never say, I'm a liar. If you'd ask me, say, Jim, have you ever in your whole lifetime told a lie? Now, if you ask it in that context, then my soul can say, well, sure, haven't we all? <laughs> See, I can sit in there. Well, Jim, have you ever told more than one lie? Now, I'm getting a little suspicious. See, my soul says, uh, uh, watch that now. Well... Yes. Haven't we all? Ha, ha, ha. Well, Jim, if you've told two lies, yes, I have two. I've told two lies. Uh, I've even told three lies. Jim, have you ever told three lies in your life? Well, if you've told three, yes, I have. See? Well, you must be a liar. Then. What? You call me a liar? Nobody can call me that. Wait a minute. You just said you lied. Don't you call me a liar. See? Now, please notice this. I can admit in one context that I lie. Well, you must be a liar then. What? I'm no liar, buddy. I tell the truth. Well, what do you mean you just lied there? Don't, don't confuse me with facts. Now, really here, this is funny because it's something that every one of you could relate to. Now, tell me, if you had been asked that question now, have you ever told a lie? You say, well, yeah, hey, sure. Haven't we all? You could have said something like that, couldn't you? Two lies? Yeah. Three lies, well, maybe. See? You must be a liar then. How would you react? See? Jim, you ever steal anything in your lifetime? Well, when I was a kid, stole an apple off a counter there. See, it's getting, this is a little rougher now, right? Well, yeah, I, I remember when I was a kid, I, I run by a grocery store and there was apples sitting out in the street there and I grabbed one, I, I run on down the street with the apple. <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid. Ever steal anything when you were older? Well, no, can't ever remember doing anything like that. Well, think a little harder now. Did you ever steal anything? Well, uh, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, 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 I did. Jim, are you a thief? Absolutely not. See, now please notice how the soul has been trained completely talking out of both sides of the mouth at the same time. It can say this and then get mad at this, but both things are said the same thing. Have you ever defrauded anyone? No, sirree. But defraud's a bad word. Jim, have you ever told a little white lie? Oh, yeah, hundreds of them, hundreds of them. See, you know how I dropped my voice? Have you ever told a little white lie? Now, how many of you ever told a little white lie? Come on, tell me. Put your hand up, have you? <laughs> I want to ask how many of you are liars. That's what you were. You're not anymore. Hallelujah. But I do want to tell you this. 
Your soul will spend its lifetime lying to you. If you don't learn to pick up this book, read it, let it apply itself to your soul, and say to your soul when you read something, soul, you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to turn yourself around and begin to do that which God requires of us. You see, as your spirit, you've already given yourself to God. I have no doubt in my mind about the quality of the people that is here. I know the commitment you've made to Jesus Christ. But I'm also giving you some stronger meat than I've given you before, and I know there are some babes here, and maybe this is not right for them yet. But I'm telling you with certainty, those of you that have had some experience walking with the Lord, it's time now that you begin taking hold of your soulish nature with all vigor and begin to train it and demand of it what you want of it. Not really what you want of it, but what God wants of it. And this book will tell you what God wants of it. Your soul is to quit lying to you. And you are to stop listening to its lies. Got a real enjoyment out of our brother Tony Tuck when he was up here the other day, heard my message on the soul, and how the soul many times will manufacture sickness as a reason for not working. But do you know that sometimes the soul, if your soul has been trained to love work, now, I know there are some people who love work. They literally love it because work is a form for them of escape. They don't want to think the thoughts that are really going through their minds. They don't want to feel the thoughts that are really in their heart. And if they can just get out and get on a job and work eight hours a day, that's good. But they'd rather have a job that they can work 12 hours a day. And they'd rather have a job that they can work 16 hours a day. And they want one that really occupies them. So they just have to be working continually like this just for the whole 16 hours. Their mind is so distracted and occupied, they can't stop. And then when it's over, they drive home and they're dead tired. They eat a bite, fall right in bed and go sound asleep. Their souls, they just love to just really keep at it and be doing something all the time. Now that kind of a soul needs to be trained how to rest on occasion. That kind of a soul needs to learn that six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day you rest. They need to learn how to come home in the evening time after a proper day's work and sit down with the Word of God and begin to study it and to meditate upon it. They need to learn how to become still before the Lord and to pray. They need to take time to meditate in the Word. Let it just sit back against the tree and sit down and relax and let the Word of God ruminate around in their spirits. But they would prefer to be really working like this. So Tony went home, and he's one of those fellows. He'd rather be working. He's a slow-moving person, but he's not a slow-moving worker. I tell you, he works. But he learned an important lesson. He got sick the day after he went home after hearing my message. See, God was going to keep it in his mind. And he said to his soul, he said, Soul, my body feels sick, but you're not going to trick me into laying in this bed. You're going to get up and you're going to work. So he gets up and he goes at it just like he'd always been doing. Now, please notice this. Just like, we're going to work. And he got weaker. And he went to sleep that night. He got up the next day. Soul, you're going to work. And he's, oh, 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 oh. And about the fourth day, was flat on his back and he couldn't move at all. And then he began to read the Word of God. 
Now, the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And finally, the truth dawned upon him that your soul loves the work. The one thing you don't like to do is to get still before God. The one thing you don't like to do is to sit down with the Word of God and meditate upon it. The one thing you don't like to do is to get before God and truly seek Him. Then he told his soul that that's what his soul was going to do in the future. It was going to do a proper amount of work and then take time to seek the Lord, time to pray, time to witness, time to meditate, time to do all the things it ought to have taken time to do. And you know what happened the minute he told his soul that? He immediately began to get well. Now he's perfectly well again. Now, folks, I cannot emphasize to you the trickiness of your own soul. See? Now, there's only one way that you're going to learn how your soul works. And that is to study this book. Now, for years, for years, my soul continued to trick me for only one reason. That reason was that I only studied the doctrine of my particular church. And I would go over those scriptures until I knew them letter perfect. I would know how to present the doctrine of my church. I would know how to preach on the four fundamentals of my church. But this Bible, though I had it for years, I never read it through even one time. I never really knew what was in this book. And then when I came to myself about 15 years ago, God pointed out to me the need to consecutively read this book. Started in the New Testament, read it through. Started in the Old Testament, read it through. And this is my practice until this day. This is the looking glass of my soul. It's also the training ground of my spirit. It causes my spirit to grow. The word enters into my spirit where it takes root and it floods out over my soul and it gives me the power to train my soul aright. But I'm telling you something right now, brother, sister, that this book was written in a certain way and a good many people still, don't think I'm making fun of you, I'm trying to get to your hearts and your minds. A good many people still will open up the book today and read a chapter out of Micah. And then they close the book and they don't remember where they left off. And then tomorrow they say, if they read it all, if they read it all now, then they'll open up the book at some other place and say, well, here I'll open up 1 Samuel 17, I'll read a chapter there. And then tomorrow I'll read here, and then tomorrow here, and tomorrow here. And this book is doing them very little good. But I'm telling you something, if you'll take this glorious book and you'll begin at some point, maybe the New Testament, maybe the Old, although I prefer for young people to get in the New Testament right away, and you start at Matthew 1, although sometimes I tell people to start at John 1, and read John. Then read on through the Bible. Read on through the Bible consecutively. Finish at Revelation, go back and start at Genesis, although you may be starting at Genesis and Matthew at the same time, because you may want to read the New Testament two or three or four times. But you're reading the Bible consecutively through. And when you finish reading it through, you know what you should now do? Start over and read it through again. And then start over and read it through again. And start over and read it through again. And every time you read this glorious book through, a number of things will take place. Number one, you will discover promises that you never read before. Now, you read them, but they didn't register on you at all. But the next time that you read through, some glorious promise will reach you enter into your spirit, 
and begin to manifest itself in your life. Point number one, you'll find new promises in the Word of God continually. Number two, this Word, which is Spirit, every time you read it through, or every time you hear it, you might have records, although don't get lazy and just say, well, if I had some records, I could just lay there on the bed and sleep and have a filter in my ear while I slept at night. That won't work, although it's all right to do that, but make sure you read too. But nevertheless, the words Jesus said that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Every time you read it through, the spirit of this book enters into your spirit and strengthens your spirit, even though you don't understand what you read. That's why I don't like the training methods of some Bible schools or the training methods of some Christian work. They take certain scriptures out and they say, memorize this scripture and put it with this scripture. Memorize this and put it with that and do this and do that. And now you know the Bible. No, you don't know the Bible. You've only got a tool by which to hit people with or by which to argue with people. But folks, what you need to do is understand the book. You need to have the message of the book in your spirit. I'm not so much interested if you've got a scripture in your head. I want to know if you've got the book in your spirit. Is it deep down in your heart? Is it controlling your life? See. Now turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, the first chapter, verse 3. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. Now, notice that it didn't say understand what's in this book to be blessed. It merely said, blessed is he that readeth, and blessed is he that heareth. And those that keep are the things that are written in this book. Now, there are things in this book that are very clear. It tells us to come out of Babylon, keep ourselves clear. In other words, that we don't get messed up in false religion. It tells us that. But literally, brothers and sisters, you can take the book of Revelation if you want a blessing and do what with it? Read it. Now, what else could you do if you want to pass the blessing on to someone else? Read it out loud and let somebody listen to you. Turn it around and hand the Bible to somebody and say, Brother, read it to me. Now, this is true of the book of Revelation. But what other book in the Bible is it also true of? That's right. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and right on through the whole Bible. Blessed is he that readeth and he that heareth this book. And they that keep those things which are written therein, here's the looking glass to my soul. And it says to my soul, soul, get with it. Quit the foolishness. Quit the silliness. Quit the justification. Quit the nonsense. Quit the lying. The Bible tells us to speak truth with every man. I have had some people talk to me, and I don't say this all the time to them, although sometimes I do. I tell them to come out from behind their hiding place. You can almost see them. They're hiding back behind their eyes. And I know this sounds silly, but I think every one of you have experienced what I'm talking about, or maybe you are a person who sometimes does that. And you're literally hiding behind your eyes, and you're looking out at the world, you know? And you're way back there, and it's just kind of like a periscope, and you're kind of, you're scanning them, and then you, saying that you, uh, you understand what I'm talking about? And a person's hiding back there, and you hear them from way down inside, they're talking to you, and they're saying, 
Yes, I'm talking to you and I'm, I'm being completely honest and I'm right out in front and I almost feel like reaching down their eyes and taking hold of them and say, come out here right and take a look at you. I don't see you. I want to know what you look like. I want to know what you're really like. Come out here. See? And some of them praise the Lord. They finally open up and you can almost see them. You can almost see them coming up closer to their eyes and then they open up and they come right out and say, hello world, I'm here. Amen. They come out. They come out. Hallelujah. Now, folks, our souls have imprisoned us long enough. Let's break out of jail and get free. Jesus said he was sent by the Lord to open the doors of the prison house. You know what the prison house is? Our own souls that have lied to us. We've justified our actions. We've pulled the silly deals off. We've gotten away with this and we've gotten away with that. Many times our conscience just smite us on the one hand and on the other hand, and we pull this justification deal right off. Let's make a high resolve before God now. No more baloney. The kind of baloney that our soul puts out that's the bad kind. Hallelujah. It is a blessing to me, for whatever it's worth to you, to have watched the large number of young people that have come under the sound of our ministry, and the ministry of the others at the Lighthouse Ranch that the Lord has raised up and used, and watch them come with all kinds of tricky, soulish little tricks, whole bag of tricks. A lot of them are real obvious. And to see our brothers and sisters, and many times myself, go to that person and would love point out what was going on. And to see that person, because of their changed nature and their changed spirit, take an honest look at that thing and say, Thank you, brother pointing that out to me. I knew it was there, but I never had the courage to really look at it before. You ever been that way sometimes about a dark corridor in the home? I don't know if any of you are afraid of the dark. When I was a little boy, I'd be terribly afraid of the dark. My parents did it to me. I don't know if they enjoyed doing it. I don't think they really did. But I think maybe it was because of the fears that were in their own soul and they couldn't help but pass them on. But they tell the most hideous ghost stories to me as a little boy, and they tell me these stories. And some of the stories were absolutely awful. And then we'd set up at night, 12 o'clock. Sometimes they let me set up once a week and hear a program called Lights Out. And I can remember that program because we'd always turn the lights out at midnight when this program went on. And of course, I was just a little boy about five years old. The first thing you'd hear is this squeaky door, squeak, 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 squeak. And go, thump. And then somebody would scream, ah, are you hot? I remember the story told about three guys were in a steel mill. And two of these guys took one guy and they threw him over the catwalk up there into a boiling cauldron of steel. And of course, he just burned right up in there. But you know, you heard a scream of the guy, oh, thump, like this, and ah, dead. And then the rest of the story was, I remember one in particular, that this guy that was boiled in this cauldron, they run it out, and part of what was done with the steel is it made an auto jack. And um, the guy that did the murder, he bought this auto jack, not knowing that his friend was in there, and uh, he put it under his car, and he jacked it up, and he went under the car, and he's laying under there working on something or other, and suddenly out of the jack, this voice comes and says, Bill. <laughs> well, now, I tell you something, this may seem funny to you, but a little five-year-old boy, it was a long time before I ever wanted to go under a car with an auto jack, that's all I can say. I didn't know who was in that auto jack. Now, the point is that this made me afraid of the dark. 
And then one time my parents put me in a dark closet, my mother did, and she said, young man, you've been a bad boy, and I'm going to put you in this dark closet, and there's a boogeyman liable to get you in there, and you're going to learn that, you know, well, oh boy, I tell you. And this dark closet had a little tiny window. It wasn't completely black. It would have been better if it had a little tiny window up there. I can remember it yet. And it shined over a coat tree that we had in there with coats hanging on this thing. And, you know, I, I turned around like this and brushed this coat tree. Couldn't see it. Brushed it, you know. And here the thing started moving. I could see it against the window. And I tell you, I began to bang on the door and yell and scream and so forth. And I tell you, a lot of us are like that with our soul. After that, whenever there was a dark room... And I'd open that room, and there was dark, even when I was an older man, 20 years old. I'd open up that dark room, and something would just... And I had to say, I'm going in there because I can't let fear master me. And I'd walk in that dark room, but all the time, things would just be crawling down my back, and just like that. See, just wish it, see. Now, my grandfather tried to get me over it when I was a little fellow, but always that fear remained until I found Jesus Christ. And I knew that in there was the Lord Jesus, just like he was out here. Hallelujah. And he was in me, and then I could walk in those places. See, I have power of all the power of the enemy. But I'm going to tell you something. There are dark corners of our soul that we don't want to look at. We don't want to look at. And sometimes, thank the Lord, our brothers and sisters make us look at them. Isn't that a wonderful thing when it happens? Painful, hurt, makes you rigid, uptight, but they make you look at it. And then for the first time, you do look at it, and you say, thank you, Lord. I never had the courage to look at that spot before. Let me ask you a question here. Are there parts of your soul that you're afraid to look at? And I tell you this right now. Ask God to take the looking glass of this mirror, this marvelous mirror, looking glass of the Word. Take your brothers and sisters from time to time and let them point out to you where the weak spots are. Oh, now careful here. I see something that could happen real easy, so I'm warning you about it. Let's not get on an exhortation trip. Someone says, oh, Brother Jim said we can run around looking for people's fault. No, no. That isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you turning the looking glass on who? Yourself. And let it look at you. Look at yourself. And if you catch yourself in something that doesn't belong there, Take hold of your soul and say, that's the end of it. We're not going to do that anymore. See? Now, Jesus said, when you cast the beam out of your own eye, what then? You'll be free to take the mote out of your brother's eye. Amen? I want you to bow your head with me in a word of prayer, please. Now, how many of you that are here tonight have had your soul do things? At times you can almost see your soul getting ready to do it. Other times you can see your soul doing it. And you never have any trouble seeing what your soul has done after it's done it. But there have been some things that you've seen it do and let it do it. Maybe not knowing how to stop it, maybe you did, were able to stop it, but you didn't stop it. Because you were falling in that little habit of justifying yourself. Or that little habit of saying, well, this is all right, it won't really hurt. How many of you have ever had that happen to you since you've been a Christian? Did I see your hand? Uh, yeah. All right. How many of you want that completely rooted out of your life? Amen. There's one thing I know about this group of people. You want your whole spirit and whole soul and whole body 
to be preserved blameless unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I have no fear about your spirit. Hallelujah. I know your love, and I know your commitment, and I know your labor. But I also know the trickiness of the human soul. And Paul didn't only pray that our spirits would be sanctified. And I'm not worried about your bodies because I've seen you keep them clean. I've seen remarkable chastity and purity and sexual cleanliness among you young people like I have never seen it in my lifetime among church people. It's a remarkable thing that God has done in your lives. But there are times that I see that tricky soul spent a lifetime learning little deceiving methods by which it could pull off little wingdings and little tricks to get its way or to avoid doing something that was unpleasant or to avoid really taking a look at itself. I've seen that at times. And Paul prayed not only that our spirits would be preserved blameless and our bodies would be preserved blameless, but that our souls would be preserved blameless unto the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to pray a prayer that every bit of trickiness and every bit of justifying, every little deviousness of your human soul be caught, be rooted out, be retrained, until everything you do in word or deed will be a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. I want you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray tonight for every person in this building, knowing, Lord, that the great majority of them have found you as their Lord and Savior. And not only have they found you as their Lord and Savior, but they've also submitted to you and given their hearts and lives to you completely, Lord. Lord, their bodies, they've asked that you will make them a vessel unto honor, that they be sanctified and kept from evil. And Lord, you have kept them. But Lord, I pray now that that last part, that soulish entity within us, Lord, that every weakness in it, every fault in it, every failure in it be exposed and be rooted out until it be a perfect instrument of expression for what you've done in our spirits. Through this, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' precious name.